Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Is there an appetite in St. Louis for traditional Ozark cuisine, a food genre that includes head cheese, squirrel dumplings, and cabbage pie? A local chef's betting on that. He's opening a restaurant in St. Louis called Bull Rush in April. The Bill Affair, Ozark Cuisine. Rob Connolly's the guy behind it. He is the author of Acorns and Cattails, a modern foraging cookbook of forest, farm, and field. And he's a previous James Beard Awards semifinalist for Best Chef Southwest. Rob, great to have you back again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I'll tell you, the Ozarks cover, I've done some research on this, 47,000 square miles, you know, in Missouri and, and uh, Arkansas and Oklahoma and parts of Kansas. So is there a single definition for Ozark cuisine? No, and in fact, among chefs, there's a, an argument or a debate about what that cuisine is. And most of the contemporary chefs that I've gotten to know over the past few years they're more interested in the food systems that exist today. So uh, what I would just call local vore chef, someone who's buying what is being grown locally. For us, what's more interesting is what were they doing in the 1800s, especially the early 1800s? Because to answer the question, what is Ozark cuisine? I have to say, how is it different than Southern cuisine or Appalachian yeah. cuisine when it's the same folks that were immigrating? And, you know, not to give you the punchline of the story in my opening statement, <laughs> but it, to me, the Ozark cuisine is the stories and the memories and the traditions of the people who lived in the Ozarks. Oh. Tell me something about your research and how you came on to want to do this in the first place. Well, I, my family's from St. Genevieve, which is on the very uh, mm. eastern edge of the Ozarks. And so uh, much of the stuff I found in my research is stuff I experienced as a, a kid. And my sous chef was raised deep in the heart of the Ozarks and mm. same thing. Mm. And so when, when we decided to focus um, on Ozark cuisine, I've got a doctorate. I went straight to the library and uh, I used the different university systems and their libraries. And in particular, uh, Arkansas has a really fantastic Ozark collection and within the Ozark collection, there's rare book collections. And so being able to go to the different libraries, whether it's in Little Rock or in Fayetteville, and put my hands on these documents, which rarely was it a book. Normally it was a letter from John Smith to his mo mom back in Boston. Or um, in one case, we found a family journal that was 1840 to 1860s that they had documented the seeds they bought, the, the crops that they traded with their neighbors, what they were finding on hunts, um, and some really interesting specific things like recipes for fruitcake. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you is where you find this information and how much stuff would have been written back, uh, written down back in the day. I, I, I have been surprised how much yeah. was documented. But the really fun thing for me is there are many, many people who are passionate about maintaining or uh, promoting the history of the Ozarks. And so it didn't take long for me to ask a few people who would ultimately connect me with the right people who have the information. And um, then it's opening a floodgate. I mean, there, I could research Ozark cuisine full time if I chose to uh, because there's so much out there and no one's really done it yet. Everyone I talk to, all these experts on Ozark history, they're focused on culture, on music, a, a lot about music, um, on agriculture, but no one looked into the food itself. And so uh, there's one professor down um, in Springfield 
And he sent me a whole file of things that he had tagged over many, many years of research because he said, it's not my area of interest, but it's interesting. And I knew at some point someone would ask for it. What are the big influences on the, the early Ozark cuisine then? Well, they're, they're of course, so depending on your perspective, of course, because there's the indigenous people and then there's the enslaved people that were down there um, and the immigrants who came through. And so really we have to look from what has been documented, and that's going to be the immigrant communities that came into the area. So we have all these folks coming in from the Appalachians, and, uh, you know, we have the German groups, um, the Scottish groups, and then we have this little quirk of a thing um, with the Swedes, which led to Swedenborg. And so when we get these different Eurocentric ethnic groups that have come in, um, they all bring a little bit of their traditions with them. I saw a lot of documentation about brown bread. Now, what do we call brown bread? Boston brown Mm. bread. And so that's how things like that happen. Uh, But those are the strongest influences in the area. There's very little documentation about the indigenous people and their food, except in some of these personal letters where they talk about trading with the Indians. Mm. What about ingredients? What were the principal ingredients, the basic fare? Yeah, there um, some things that would surprise you that aren't on there. Um, you know, for example, people keep asking me, so we're going to have lamb in the restaurant, right? Well, actually, no. I We have documentation in a number of letters that said no lamb because of the wolves. The wolves were too fierce to, to raise lamb. Um, and same with cow. Cow weren't really in that area. It, there were some, but it's more when you get to the, the flattening of the plateau. But of course, there's pork because uh, pigs can live out in the woods uh, very comfortably and well, as we now know. Mm-hmm. Um, on the the grain side, we don't see corn, but we see sorghum. In modern times, we see rice. We didn't see rice back in the day. Um, I I saw a lot with millet, and so it's those uh, those hearty small grains that tended to do well down there. And then there's forage now. Back then, they didn't think of it as something special, and I saw no mention of pawpaw, although we'll serve a lot of pawpaw because we love foraging it. Mm. Um, but of course, there there were mushrooms, there's foraged honey, mm. um, and some great stories about how to find that foraged honey and things like that. What, what about uh, wild animals? I, m- I mentioned squirrel at the top. I mean, plenty of those in the Ozarks, I know. Yes, and you won't see that in our restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> but, but venison, for sure. Yeah. Um, and back then, there was elk, of course, that was depleted and now it's coming back. Um, wild turkey. Um, we do see record of, of beaver, bear, and some of these game that you really don't, they either don't exist or so depleted that people just don't eat them nowadays. What kind of a market do you think? Obviously, you've done due diligence. You're not new to this game. What kind of a market do you think there is out there for people interested in eating this kind of food? Well, if we back up and say it's, it is a form or a, a subgenre of Southern cuisine, mm-hmm. we know based on the number of Southern and Seoul restaurants in town that there's plenty of market. What we're um, really pushing for is that there's a market for people who want more depth to their meal. So yeah, you can come in and just have a meal, but to know the history and to see the connection between a letter from 1820 talking about a certain ingredient and then how we've prepared it in 2019 using modern technology, being aware of modern uh, palates and taste buds, 
and modern plating, I think that's, um, to me, that's fascinating, having that connection. Because the other way of looking at it is, if I put cornbread out on the table, you can get 100 different types of cornbread here in town. And some are good and some are bad. We're going to give you excellent cornbread, of course, uh, but it's rooted in something that's a little deeper. How, how are uh, customers, diners, going to get this history? Are you having a little museum or library as part of it? No, we want to make sure that we're not preachy at all. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not there. When you go out to dinner, you're not going for a history lesson. But um, you'll see it in a few ways. Part of it's on the menu where we might reference the letter in 1820, the journal from 1860. Um, and then mm-hmm. when you do the full dinner versus – we have bar food as well. But when you do the full dinner, at the end of it, we're going to give you a detailed menu. And the detailed menu will include um, extensive information on the history that you'll be able to take home. Mm-hmm. And at that point, if you want to read it, you can. And then I think the most important thing is for us, we are a sort of a theater in the round dining room. So everyone's going to be sitting single, uh, single row around the kitchen and there's no servers. So you're going to be asking me questions as you eat, and you're going to watch me cook, and you're going to watch me uh, handle ingredients that you might not know what they are. And so that's my opportunity to educate you in a a casual and friendly way uh, and certainly interactive. Back in the day, what would be the meal? I don't mean to say Thanksgiving meal, but if you're preparing a holiday meal of some sort or something for a special occasion, what might it be? Yeah, I've talked to a lot of old timers from the area, and they've made it clear that I absolutely have to do one of two things, hominy or beans, always with greens, normally poke, although it can be other greens, but uh, the Mm -hmm. weed poke, always cornbread. The greens always have pork in them. And the cornbread is never sweet and often with sorghum butter on the side. That sounds real country to me. Yep. Yep. I I can't wait to eat stuff like that. (laughs) Really, really. You told me that you grew up in St. Genevieve and on the uh, fringe, if you will, of the Ozarks. But what put this into your head aside from your own background to to try this kind of an establishment? Well, when um, when I came back to town, as you know, I was gone for 30 years after college. And when I came back a few years ago, and had been doing a foraged food restaurant for a number of years in New Mexico. Um, I thought, well, I'm just going to open a foraged food restaurant here because that taps into what's important to me, local quality ingredients and hyper-seasonal. But when I added the element of Ozarks, it made so much more sense because it's the food I was raised on, but now I know how to cook it and cook it differently, and I'm going to say better. Uh, No one's food is better than grandma's, but uh, with a modern sensibility. And so it just was a natural transition. Instead of saying a forage food restaurant, we're going to do an Ozark restaurant that uses forage food. Well, we'll come back and talk about how you're going to uh, uh, acquire this, obviously by foraging, but when and where in just a moment. We're talking with Rob Connolly. Uh, He is the owner-operator of a restaurant soon to open in Grand Center. It's called Bull Rush, and we'll continue our conversation in just a moment. And if you'd like to be a part of it, maybe you have some uh, experience with Ozark cuisine, if you will, or would like to learn more about it, give us a call at 382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org, or if you would prefer, send us a tweet at STL on Air. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. 
And welcome back as we continue our conversation with Rob Connolly. He is the owner of Bull Rush, a brand-new restaurant that will be opening in Grand Center in sometime in April. Is that right, uh, Rob? Yeah, we should be open maybe the first or certainly the second week of April. Okay, and where exactly in Grand Center is it going to be? We're at 3307 Washington, which is right next to the Metro Theater and the Big Muddy Dance Company. Okay, easy to find. Yeah. Okay, let's go get back to the uh, foraging question. I know that's uh, one of your specialties. Are you going to be uh, going out and foraging for the ingredients for food in your, in your place? Yeah, absolutely. I Years ago, I learned um, I need to gather myself because there's so many ethical and legal issues around foraging. And uh, I... I Quite frankly, I'm just more comfortable going on and getting it myself at this point. Mm. Explain to our audience who may not really know exactly what foraging is, what it is. So um, I go out pretty much every morning when we're in season, and um, I go into the woods, generally private land, almost always wooded, sometimes fields, and we look for ingredients that are growing wild and um, have not been tainted by pesticides or other pollutions. And um, we gather them. And when we gather them, there's, as I referred to, there's a lot of ethical issues like making sure we don't over-harvest so the crop comes back the next year, um, being aware of things like what's a native species versus an invasive species. For example, mustard, um, garlic mustard is a green that we can take as much as we want from anywhere because mm -hmm. we'll never kill it. Um, and then we bring it back and, and prepare it. But it's, it's going shopping in the woods. Gee, you'd have, to, you'd have to pick up an awful lot of stuff, I would think, to support a restaurant. Yeah, um, th that's absolutely the yeah. case. And we supplement it with local farmers. Um, and here in town, we already have a good relationship with a bunch of farmers like Earth Dance Farms and some of the others that make the rounds. But uh, we're adding a fun one this time because part of the research told us seeds that were being planted in the 1830s and the, some of those seeds, three different ones, are still available today. And so we've contacted the, uh, the museum in Sappington who does a heritage garden, and they're going to grow those seeds for us. Wow. You said that you uh, go to, on private property to, to do this foraging. What's, what sort of uh, arrangements do you make? Or do you make with oh, uh, the owners? <laughs> yeah, especially on the Ozarks. I don't want to get shot. So um, we, we put ads out on Facebook regularly mm. asking for uh, land. And so we call it the Bull Rush Land Partnership. And what happens is they give us land that we can have access to to forage. And in return, we um, give them VIP events. All right. Well, let's talk a little more specifically now about some of the things that uh, you're actually going to be cooking. Uh, you, you said off the air that there were some things people might not expect to find at uh, Bull Rush, such as? Well, so people have been asking me about seafood. And in particular, people say, so you're serving trout, right? And if you had asked me three months ago, I would have said, of course, we're serving trout. But what I've learned is, and many people know this, trout were introduced in the 1950s for sports fishing. So they're not native to the area. But what did show up in the earliest records is oysters. Yeah. Now, that's odd, right? <laughs> but what was happening is they were coming up the rivers and being traded. And so it was it was the seafood source. Of, of course, there's pond fish. And, and I also have seen record of eel, which I'm not sure how uh, we'll make that work yet, but we're still exploring 
how uh, pervasive that was. Um, but oysters absolutely going to be on the menu because it needs to be. You know, I think that I've heard that oysters can be found as far north as Iowa. Does that sound right to you? Well, I, I don't know about in Iowa. Uh-huh. And the question is how they get there. Um, the ones that were documented mm-hmm. are clearly Gulf o- oysters. And so, you know, for us trying to be authentic but contemporary, this poses a new challenge. Do we focus only on oysters from the Gulf or do we say we'll fly them in from anywhere? And uh, these are things that we'll explore, but in general, I will always err on the side of, of what is authentic to the region, which mm-hmm. would be Gulf oysters in this case. We talked about the meal, that one that everyone says that you have to have. What, what is going to be your centerpiece uh, uh, on the menu? Well, I can tell you, mm-hmm. opening day, there's one thing that I'm most excited about. And I know many people have had fried pies or hand pies. Uh, if anyone's been down to Sykeston and gone to the Lambert's restaurant next door at the gas station's a fried pie shop. And, you know, it's it's very much a part of the history. I want to make a fried pie that is 2019. Now, when I say that, um, that should, shouldn't scare traditionalists away because to me, the problem with fried pies that I've had in this research is they're always a little soggy. They're always sickly sweet. So how do we make a pie that's crunchy and delicious and, and fresh? Um, because we don't want canned pie filling, obviously. And so my opening course is going to have a fried pie, which traditionally is a dessert, but I think I can pull it off as an appetizer or entree. Is there a variety of fillings for a fried pie? Um, well, you know, if you go to the fried pie shop, I think they have 20 different ones. Uh, for me, I'm looking at things like um, doing a savory one that maybe uses the garlic mustard um, or the red buds will be blooming very soon. So we're going to start harvesting red buds and the flavor and bouquet of a red bud is interesting enough that that could become a sort of sweet, sort of savory filling for the pie if I wanted to go a custard route. Mm. Um, And the other thing I'm looking at right now is kudzu. Kudzu's that invasive vine that's just taking over the south, but it is already in Missouri. And the root of that is a starch that I can turn into a a crisp. So this is how we take a classic and make it contemporary. It sounds like the menu is going to have to change uh, seasonally, obviously, because some things are not going to be available. Going to be quite a variety then uh, within the restaurant itself. Yeah, it it will change I say nightly, of course it won't change exactly nightly, but we may have a dish that's composed of 10 different components, and of those components, some things we'll have for months and some we'll have for days. Um, when the the ingredient runs out in days, then we switch to something else, mm-hmm. and that, that's very common for how I've cooked over the past. And An example I use is um, uh, cattail pollen can be really prolific. And one year, I came back um, in the season, which is only about two weeks, and I had two tablespoons versus two quarts. And so I had cattail pollen on the menu for about three nights, and that's Mm -hmm. it. How the heck did people come upon cattail pollen? I mean, (laughs) they must have been desperate to find things like this and then, you know, implement them as part of their uh, diets. Well, I I think it goes back to the indigenous people, and they, they knew to use the root and the corm, the horizontal root, as a starch to make bread. And at some point, someone said, well, if we can do that, I guess we can eat the top part. And mm-hmm. so they start eating the, the brown fuzzy, which actually starts off in, as green, which is really yummy at that stage. So mm-hmm. naturally, it's the next extension. This plant seems to be 
safe to eat and delicious. So when it pollinates and we have this bright, beautiful, yellow, fragrant powder on top, what does it taste like? And, and um, it's not something that you're going to fill up on, but it sure adds a nice component to a dish. What is the most complicated dish you'll, you'll have? Oh, I, I think this restaurant, all of our dishes in the dining room are going to be complicated. Uh -huh. And by complicated, I don't mean fussy. We're very much not chefs that tweezer the food to death. Um, but the bar food itself is very basic. Like we're looking at the classics, grits, biscuits and gravy, uh, collard greens, ham hock, cornbread, but then making them contemporary, um, but always hearty and always they have to uh, go right back to those food memories that you have from your childhood or maybe your grandmother used to tell you about. If, if we don't tap into those food memories by the smell and the flavor, then we've missed the boat. The dining room, that's for a little more adventurous eater. And so uh, we're going to play around a little more. We still have to nail those food memories, but it's going to look very different. I want to go back to the pie for a moment because I mentioned the introduction that cabbage pie is out there among the recipes. I don't know if you're serving it, but uh, tell me a little bit about cabbage pie. Yeah, cabbage pie's out there. Um, we we saw a lot of different flavored pies, mm -hmm. which makes sense. And and actually, let me explain a different way. Someone, um, I was talking to a woman who's born and raised in the Ozarks. She's in her 90s. And she was telling me what her grandmother used to tell her. And it's the seasonality of pie. So in the summer, when the berries are out, you have berry pie. And as the berries wane, then we get down to um, apple pie, pumpkin pie, you know, the, the late summer, early fall pies. But then what do you do? You still have to have dessert. And so then you transition to the preserved pies. So you've canned your cherries, you've canned your peaches or whatever else, or you've dehydrated. And, and those become your preserved pies. But then we get to January, February, and March. Now it gets interesting. And there's a pie that's out there that has a number of names. Sometimes it's called vinegar pie, sometimes transparent pie, and sometimes pasture pie. Uh. And it's all the same thing. It's what do you do when you want dessert and you don't mm -hmm. have anything to make dessert with? And, and so the, there are other ones like buttermilk pie. You know, it's the same idea. And here a vinegar pie is essentially vinegar, cornstarch, uh, corn and sugar. Mm -hmm. And there are variations that happen with that, but that's the basic of it. You know, I asked you a little while ago about the most complicated thing on the menu. I went through a number of things you were nice enough to send, and a number of recipes. It seems to me that most of those recipes are very, very simple. Yep. Yeah, they, they should be. The, the techniques and skill that we use to prepare them shouldn't be more difficult than what you can do at home. Because I, I've always believed if you can make something at home and better, why spend your money at a restaurant? Mm. That's just my my cheap uh, up <laughs> my cheap upbringing. I, I, I'm very tight with my money when it comes to food because I know I can cook at home even before I was a chef. So, yes, all of them are basic things. And, and when you look at our menu, there shouldn't be anything that you say, I don't know what this is or this mm. is goofy. Uh, it should look very basic. When it comes to you on the table, on that plate, it should look a little bit unusual and maybe not something that you're used to. But again, the second you bite into it, all those memories should flood back. Mm. We're talking with Rob Connolly. He's the owner of Bull Rush, a soon-to-open restaurant here in the Grand Center neighborhood, if you will, uh, and it features Ozark cuisine. Rob, how, how healthy is this food? 
Well, this is where we take that contemporary interpretation of things because um, back in the day, they weren't as uh, aware of fats, especially. Um, but even with that, we're, we're looking at using a lot of lard. I, I've never used shortening. I've always been a butter guy myself. But we're mm. looking at lard, and there's a lot of debate about the health, healthiness or unhealthiness of lard versus butter. Um, but because we're doing such fresh food, um, it, it's going to be fresher than what you're used to at most restaurants anyway. And then the other thing is we do a lot with fermentations. I was just going to ask you about that. Yeah, and because it, <clears throat> back in the day, they would have dried or cured or pickled. But now we have a lot more techniques. For example, we'll be using something called koji, and we'll use it extensively. Koji um, essentially speeds up the fermentation process, and it's a very healthy um, way of eating and, and how your stomach responds to it. And um, so that's a modern thing that comes from Japan that we can apply to Ozark cuisine, mm -hmm. which as a diner, you don't know or care necessarily, except that the food will taste really good. What do people drink with this food? Well, when I first said I was going to do this, I, I said, wow, we got to do moonshine. But I, I think moonshine will not be the, the primary driver of the menu. You can call something moonshine. It doesn't have to be. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, we will have whiskey. I, I actually think what's more interesting to us, you know, we're going to have a, a great bar program. Um, our wines are rooted in um, historic references. So the grapes that were grown in the Ozarks in the 1800s, Either you don't want them or they don't exist anymore. But we know a lot of that rootstock was sent to France at the end of the 1800s. So we've actually traced down the regions where the, root, the Missouri rootstock went in France, and that's the wines that we're focusing in on. We have some other unique ones that are um, tied to varietals. Um, like Anyway, there's a bunch of them that people will see. And then on the cocktail side... Um, don't expect to walk in and see a menu of the traditionals. Of course you can ask for them because our staff is really skilled. But we're looking at more interesting things like there's a, a classic thing called pot liquor, which is the juice from when you boil your mm -hmm. collard greens. Mm -hmm. That liquid is a delicacy in itself. I mean, there's tons of references of Paul got to drink the pot liquor and everyone was <laughs> jealous. Well, I said to my beverage manager, what can we do to make a cocktail out of pot liquor. It's unusual, but it's one of those some people will trust us and I think they're going to have a great drink out of it. The other thing that we're really focused in on is the um, spirit-free, non-alcoholic drinks. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that in town we are the leader in this. Um, and my thought is when I go to a dinner with my spouse, one of us drinks and one of us drives. Mm -hmm. And the person who drives, they're there to celebrate, too. So there's no reason not to give them spectacular drinks. No beer? We will have beer. <laughs> and um, I've never understood <clears throat> restaurants that serve beer that's not from St. Louis when we have, what, 52 and counting <laughs> breweries in town. There's so much beer. Um, we're going to have a, a, a small but really well-curated list. Got a couple of questions here that have been via email and Twitter. Uh, uh, someone is asking, what are some plants that are easy and safe to forage in the St. Louis area? Yeah, the, the one I always go to because it's, uh, it's everywhere. It's in your yard right now. Well, once it warms up a little yeah. bit, and that's purslane. Uh -huh. Purslane uh, is easy to identify. Google it, and uh, the, the picture will get you to it. And then the other one that is popping up already is chickweed. 
Um, chickweed is also a, a weed that you'd love to get rid of, and there's plenty of it, and it tastes good. And uh, just as we're heading into the season here, I would again like to say red bud. Red bud's something my sous chef introduced me to, and I just love it. The, the flavor and bouquet of it is spectacular. Mm. And morels are coming less than two weeks away. Yeah. They showed up in Springfield um, over the weekend. <clears throat> and with mushrooms, of course, seek out more experienced mentorship. Yeah, that can you can get into real trouble uh, yeah. with that. Um, I have another uh, question here, an email question I want to ask. But how how are you going to price this stuff? I mean, if you're going out and foraging, that's you're not paying for it per se. How do you price? Yeah, it's funny because um, the bankers and the accountants have all asked me the mm-hmm. same thing, and yeah, sure. and they don't understand when I say the cost of goods is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I say we we make up the cost in labor, yeah. and so the the bar food menu is going to be really affordable. Mm. It, the goals to have it like 12 to 20 dollars for a full meal not mm. not bar food in terms of like small plates the dining room that's a tasting menu and so um, I, I guess I need to preface this before you get the sticker shock we do everything where it's all-inclusive pricing so it has the tax and the tip or the hospitality already included so you're not paying a penny more and so we're doing a seven course dinner for a hundred dollars. Mm. So that's that's um, actually low for tasting menus in town, but it's it's up there with a, a celebratory meal. Hmm. All right, we have one more question here that we can give you, and that's Daniel writing. Uh, he writes, "Stinging nettles blanched salad was a staple in most Ozark uh, dinners. However, many country folks are too proud to admit it. It was often considered the last meal of desperation." Yeah, it, it's true, <laughs> and and we found other ingredients too that. Um, People were not willing to talk about, but if I would ask them about it, they would admit to it. Because, again, this is poverty food. This is sustenance, survival food. Um, But like so many other cuisines, now is the time to elevate it and and give it its day in the sun. Well, we're looking forward to Bull Rush opening in April. No specific date, uh, or do you... I'm still waiting for inspections and a few little paint jobs. Well, I want to thank you, Rob Connolly, for being with us. Good luck with the restaurant. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, thank you. It's going to be an interesting place to eat in more ways than one. Thank you, sir. His restaurant, Bull Rush, as we uh, indicated, will be opening in Grand Center sometime in April. Coming up, Beverly Brennan on Love and Marriage. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. 